0: Welcome, this is On Mike with Jordan Rich. Conversation is alive and well. Conversation with creative people who have something to say. Today we welcome a memoirist whose personal experiences in and around Vietnam during the war certainly caught my attention and the attention of others in his book called Yesterday's Soldier. Tom Keating is joining us. This is a different kind of soldier's memoir story of a young guy coming of age during difficult times. You'll hear us discuss the fact that he was on his way to becoming a priest. That didn't work out. He then chooses to enlist in the army during the height of the Vietnam War, training as a war fighter, which comes into direct conflict with Tom's faith and background in prayer. And thus begins the saga of this soldier who laid down his weapon in Vietnam, but still served his country. I have the greatest respect for veterans of all eras and appreciate the chance to talk with somebody like Tom Keating. So let's welcome him, the author of Yesterday's Soldier. Tom Keating joins us on mic. Tom, what I've discovered in my long life is that every story about war is unique, is special, and yours certainly fits the bill. Why did you write Yesterday's Soldier, first of all?
1: I wrote the book because um, I always thought that I had a different kind of experience in the Vietnam War. Uh, I knew from my experience that uh, very few people who had been highly trained infantrymen would get the uh, uh, approval to be a non-combatant while they were in the service. I always knew that was a unique story. And uh, part of uh, why I wrote it is because I kept a I kept a pretty good journal of of most of my experiences there in the military and in Vietnam, and I kept going back to it, and I kept saying, "Well, when are you gonna write the book, when are you gonna write the book and um, uh, it took me well till I practically just retired before I went back to that mm. big pile of notes and and realized that, yeah, I can still write this unique story, and I better get going on it because I have no more excuses <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> i I wrote this story because I felt it was uh, one of the uh, more unique stories about a young man and facing the war. There was a lot of books out by veterans about getting drafted, going through the the mill, becoming combat people or other uh, pilots and stuff like that. And I felt that my story was as unique as theirs. So I wanted to get it out. I wanted people to know about it. and That's why I wrote it.
0: Let me ask you a couple things about your background, and it plays into the story very importantly. You're a local guy. By local, I mean Boston, New England, et cetera. You were intent on becoming a priest at one point. You entered religious life, Holy Cross, in, uh, in our state here. And you were looking to become uh, ordained. There's a lot that goes into that process, and obviously, that didn't didn't happen. Didn't take.
1: I I grew up in a, in a Roman Catholic Irish American family, family always voted Democrat. You know, it was typical in a suburb of uh, uh, in Connecticut and on the shore near uh, Long Island Sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was taught in high school by uh, members. Of a religious order called the Congregation of Holy Cross, they were all priests, young young priests, who were very good teachers. And I, I, of course, uh, going through that high school, I I had a, a real great admiration for them. And in my between my junior and my senior year, I felt you know maybe my My vocation is to be a priest, and I talked about it with my parents. And uh, they were very excited, of course, to have a son to become a priest. So when I graduated from high school, I I entered the Holy Cross Father Seminary in northeastern Massachusetts, which was part of the campus of Stonehill College. Mm -hmm. And I began my religious training there. It is a seven-year process. You begin as what they call a postulant, and you work your way through that first year where you do a lot of adjusting about prayer and and discipline and things like that. And then they send you up to their novitiate, where you become a new member of the Order after a year of very stringent rules and prayer. Mm. So I, I went through all of that, and... Uh, by my senior year in college, which would have been my almost my sixth year in the seminary um, less than a year before my first ordination, um, i was I was asked to not further my my vocation and that kind of uh,
0: I don't know much about that world. How often does does something like that happen that somebody works through several years and then doesn't quite make it is asked to leave gracefully?
1: In the case, I my case, in the year 1968, it was happening quite a lot because there was a lot of pressure on young men mm. uh, to leave that particular lifestyle. Um, the church was retrenching; it was pulling back from the uh, Vatican II reforms, and those that were in power were trying to prevent young, open-minded seminarians from furthering. As priests, so it happened quite a bit. In my case, there were at least six of us mm. who were asked to not continue our, our journey to priesthood that year in that seminary.
0: So, so, um, so where did that leave you emotionally? And you write about it in the book, obviously, but share with us your thoughts and feelings, if you recall.
1: Well, I, as I described in the book, I was to meet with the Father Superior on my next assignment after college. And that is usually going to theology training and ordination. Now, when I walked into the Father Superior's office and he told me that they didn't think I was—I had a full vocation and that I should leave—it was a horrendous shock to mm-hmm. me. I had—I uh, knew I had had some troubles uh, during my during my seminary days. Uh, Mostly because I was losing friends who were leaving, and uh, it it got to be a got to be a little bit of a a lonely situation. But I turned it around in my in my uh, senior year. I was on the honor roll and and doing great things. And so it was a terrible shock. Mm. I had it came out of left field, as they say. I did not expect that I would not be allowed to be uh, ordained. Uh, It was a
0: shock. You mentioned the year 1968, so here's where the Vietnam conflict, which is overreaching everywhere during that period, comes into play. How did you end up in the Army in the first place, before we talk about your status?
1: As I was leaving, uh, the Father Superior notified me that by law they had to let the local draft board in my town know that I was no longer a, Mm. what was called a divinity student, which uh, meant that I had a deferment from any kind of selective service obligation. And that meant that when I got to my hometown in Connecticut, my hometown would know that I was no longer deferred and was eligible for the draft. In 1968, which was one of the bloodiest years of that war, a lot of towns were being uh, tasked to fill the ranks of uh, America's military. So I had uh, been in a seminary for six years, almost, excuse me. I had been in the seminary for five and a half years during the war, and all my high school friends had either joined the uh, reserves or had joined uh, other military units to avoid going to Vietnam. So when I got home, there were very few slots available for Army Reserve or National Guard. And so I, I had no choice but to either wait for the draft or enlist. And I talked to my uncle, who was a career Army man, and he said, you know, if you enlist, you'll be what they call regular Army, and some things will fall your way during your training that would not happen to a draftee. And I didn't know what he meant at the time, but he did say it's better to be an enlistee than to be a draftee so knowing knowing I was going to get one uh, going to get drafted I enlisted
0: you take us through a fascinating time when you were in basic combat training infantry mm-hmm. advanced training infantry mm-hmm. officer candidate school all the trappings all the markings of a professional soldier at this point right yeah. so you, you became very proficient uh, with weaponry I mean you were you were being trained to kill basically.
1: Yes, I was, and I was eager to learn, and it sounds weird. And it, uh, I was determined that if I was going to be in the Army, I was probably going to be going to Vietnam, and I better learn everything I could so that I could survive over there. So I took my training pretty seriously. Mm-hmm. I became an expert rifleman in basic training. I became an expert rifleman in mid- Infantry school, which followed basic training. I became an an expert on most of the weapons that was available to infantry squads in 1968. That included the M60 machine gun, uh, the M2 50 caliber gun. And um, I, I, I just wanted to be sure that I knew as much as I could because I knew I'd be going to Vietnam and I wanted to survive that being said i agreed to go to officers candidate school infantry because i figured more training would benefit me and so i I went to fort benning georgia after infantry school determined to be an infantry platoon leader as a second lieutenant and that's when things changed
0: there is a marked event. Uh, you, you do have a, a philosophical, I'm going to call it metaphysical shift in your way of thinking and your way of feeling that turns you into the guy you became, a non-combatant, a conscientious objector. What yeah, was, yeah. just in brief terms, the incident, the issue that changed your mind and your heart?
1: We were in an intense training program at the Officer's Candidate School. You were, you were being trained 24-7. We, and we ran everywhere we went. We were always carrying weapons. We, I mean, it was very intense. Except there were periods of downtime, usually on a weekend, when uh, the candidates, like me, would be doing uh, sort of maintenance work on their barracks. And I was given the assignment of watering the lawn in front of the main barracks. Uh, Barracks at Fort at, at our um, installation at Fort Benning, and I was turned on the hose and started watering. And for some reason, all of a sudden, I started to weep, and I got scared. And I said, "What? What's happening? What, what's going on?" And I couldn't stop crying. And then, in the back of my head, kind of, kind of came like a not a voice, but a, a realization that. This is not what you're supposed to be doing. You can't kill people. You're not supposed to be doing this. Get yourself out of this situation. And that really scared me because I thought maybe I was kind of going a little loopy. So I shut off the water to the to the hose and went into the into the office of the of the battalion and I talked to the first sergeant and I said I got a problem here and I explained it to him and he was a very understanding guy. A little side story there, when I first came into the officer's candidate school and I met the top sergeant, he was studying, he was taking a course I saw on the, on the desk of his, uh, in his office, he was studying on post-war Japan. And I had done a post-war Japan study in the seminary. It was one of those electives you could take. I took it. My superiors in the seminary didn't know why, but I had a fascination for post-war Japan and and MacArthur's uh, ruling of Japan then. And so I mentioned to him that I had read that textbook and we became, we we had a relationship then. And he was, uh, he uh, was uh, very appreciative of the fact that I gave him some of the thoughts I had about Japan. Fast forward, when I go into the office and tell him I had a problem, we had, had established a relationship, so he was understanding. And, uh, but that's how the incident happened, watering the lawn, and all of a sudden, mm. six years of seminary training came up from somewhere, my heart uh, probably.
0: <laughs> when I was younger, and I'm a little younger than you are, in the 60s, I remember uh, we had a first cousin who declared himself a CO, a conscientious objector. Now, he was not in the military at the time. So mm-hmm. it required a lot of proof, preparation, paperwork, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your story is fascinating because you're in the military, you're trained, and yeah. you fired weapons and so forth. And then you declare this. It's one thing to be out of the military and try to stay out. What do you do when you become a non-combatant in a place where they want you to break things and kill people?
1: Okay, uh, I uh, I had trained on all those weapons. And one of the one of the first things the military told me when I made my application for conscience objective was uh you never objected to being trained in those weapons so this is a false statement Mm -hmm. on your part and we're going to send you to fort leavenworth kansas now uh that was pretty intimidating uh but that was at the base level that was not at the department of defense level that was just the, the reaction by the the commander of the of the uh officer's candidate battalion I was in, but so the first sergeant was very helpful. He said to me, if you, if you apply to be a conscience objector and leave the military, the army is going to sue you Mm. for all that training and everything. And they will try to put you in jail. However, he said, if you want to agree to stay in the military, but as a non-combatant, that might be a better chance for you to get, Granted your status, so I took his advice, and I sat at a, uh, the post library at Fort Benning, and wrote out in longhand because nobody had computers then. I uh, wrote out in longhand my my appeal to be a conscience objector, and then I also wrote letters to Stonehill College and to the to the seminary uh, to ask for their you know endorsement of my my post my position. Yes. And uh, while I was waiting for all of that to happen, the Army wanted to change my mind. And the way they did that was they assigned me to a casual barracks, casual being a barracks where guys are in transition somehow. They're either going somewhere or coming back from somewhere. And the casual barracks were usually the workforce barracks because it was free labor while guys were waiting. You can make them do things. And the army decided to make me do things that were, I would say, more than anybody else. Mm. Cleaning, uh, cleaning um, grease traps every day, and and I'm, these are grease traps where you had to stand in them. Mm. These are not little tiny grease traps. Or, work, or working out in on the weekends fixing uh, uh, sandbags at the uh, firing range while everybody's on weekend pass. A lot of harassment. Uh, Shakedown inspections. I'd get get inspected by the by the sergeant every couple of weeks to make sure I didn't have any drugs or weapons or right. or anything. And uh, it was it was what was called the treatment.
0: The treatment, uh, right, it, right,
1: it, yeah. yeah. It, it's an unofficial army. Uh, you know, it's like uh, uh, in the movie uh, with Montgomery Cliff. Uh, I can't remember. Oh, it is, uh, off
0: From podcast. Here to Eternity.
1: From Here to Eternity. Sure, I know. What he you... didn't want to box, so they right. made him do all sorts of things.
0: Yeah, terrible. I yeah.
1: didn't want to kill when they, they made me do all sorts of things. So so this so, is all
0: happening before you head overseas, though, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Four yeah. months of that. Wow. And then uh, near the end of that four months, I, I lucked out and got a, a, a really nice duty as a company clerk because I could type. I was a college kid, and uh, I did a good job for them. But then the army came down with their decision. They said, Okay, we're gonna make you a conscientious objector. Great, I said, Thank you. And then they said, We're gonna send you to Fort Sam Houston in Texas to become a combat medic. And I said, Fine. I'd rather take I'd rather, you know, save a life mm-hmm. as a combat medic than to take a life as an infantryman. I'm I'm good with that. And they said, Okay, I'm literally packing my duffel bag to go to Fort Sam Houston, when they came back with another decision and said, "Now nah, we're going to send you to Vietnam instead," and I said, "Oh, okay. You mean, when? Uh, yeah, go home for two weeks, and then we're going to send you over." I, I was—I didn't know why that happened, but uh, I found out later why it happened. But then it was quite a shock. So, yeah. called my folks, called my family, told them I was coming home, and then, oh, by the way, after that, I'm going over to Vietnam. Well, so that was pretty quick.
0: Yeah, what, what was the reaction of your family, particularly your father, to all this?
1: Originally, they were very upset because, remember, they thought their son was going to be a priest, and it didn't happen. And then they thought their son was going to be an Army officer, Then that didn't happen. So there was a lot of distress and a lot of, I would say, anger at me uh, when this thing started. However, when I got home and explained again all the circumstances that went through my decision, they were, they were very supportive of me. But initially, they were very upset. Mm-hmm. Um, in the book, there's a section where they actually had the post chaplain, who was a major or a lieutenant colonel, come down and try and convince me that killing for Jesus was a good thing. I don't know if you remember that particular. I do. Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, but that all changed when I got home, and they realized uh, I was sincere, and it's my life, not theirs, and and uh, so they were very supportive. In fact, the day I the day I uh, reported to Fort Dix, I had to take a train from my home in Connecticut to uh, New York, and transfer to to uh, buses to Fort Dix. My father gave me a big hug and and he said, you know, don't don't lift your head and don't volunteer for anything. Yeah. But uh, he was very supportive. Right. He was a member of the Greatest Generation. My dad, who did not fight in the war as a military man, he was an aircraft designer. He helped design some of the some of the very famous aircraft that that the United States used in World War II. Uh, so he was of that generation. So uh, initially he, he was upset with my my decision for SEAL, but he he, he came around.
0: Let's now focus just a bit, and, and we're almost to the conclusion of our interview, but I wanted to check in with you about the Vietnam experience because you write a lot about it. You connected with uh, civilians. It's an eerie, weird time to be in Vietnam where, you know, you've got the offensives, the Tet, you've got everything else going on, and you also have— to deal with your fellow troops, soldiers who may have looked at you uh, askance because of your CO status. Just share with us a couple of stories from, from the book that you want to okay. highlight. Uh,
1: when I got over there, I was what was called unassigned. I didn't have an assignment. I had a, I had the status of conscience objector, and I did have experience as a company clerk, which was on my record. Uh, the the best luck I ever had, I think, in my life was when I got to Vietnam, when I arrived at the processing center outside of Saigon, my uh, my luck uh, was incredible because the clerk assigned to make assignments for enlisted personnel was, in fact, a Stonehill College graduate. <laughs> and And he saw my... My record file came across his desk, and he pulled it. And so I didn't have to go through the rest of the process. He got me an assignment with a headquarters company, which meant I was in a relatively safe zone. And uh, that, was, that was incredible. Um, so I get up to the place where I'm supposed to be, and it was a very small military history unit, which was assigned uh, to uh, document, the history of logistics support in Vietnam this is typical military. They always keep re-examining themselves. And there were four enlisted men. Two of them were combat veterans who got lucky themselves and got reassigned after, after six months because they needed people who could type. And the other two were, uh, one was a combat medic and the other one was just a regular clerk. Uh, the four of us, we worked okay. They weren't the problem. The problem was the officers, in, mm. in, in terms of how I was treated. Uh, we we had four officers that worked in the in the group with us, and they, to a man, thought I was a communist because I was a conscientious objector. So they they tried to give me the treatment like the, like I got in, in the states, but it didn't work very well because, uh, what could they do? Send me to Vietnam, you know.
0: <laughs> I see. that's so, a way to look at it. Yeah. 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 So,
1: uh, but they they were uh, they were not they were not particularly uh, helpful to me. They held up my it uh, held up my promotion from uh, PFC to Specialist Fourth Class. I finally got it, and they also uh, refused to let me go to Saigon to re-certify uh, as a lifeguard because I had been a lifeguard at a previous flight. and. If I lost my certification, I'd have to go through it all over again. And it was only a half a day, but he wouldn't let me go because, you know, he had too much else to do, Keating, Mm. and really didn't have anything to do, but he just just wanted to put it to me. But um, so we finished that particular unit, we finished our job together, and we got reassigned out to other units after that. This was in 1969 when President Nixon was... Vietnamizing the war, which meant he was taking American troops out of Vietnam and turning over responsibility of the war to the Vietnamese Army. And so what was happening in the US military was men were being sent home, but in order to continue the war, men who were there got reassigned to fill those spots. It was kind of a you know, pouring sand from one cup to another until until they they didn't have any more sand. And so we all got reassigned, and I got reassigned to a different unit, and I had no problem with them. They were all professionals, and uh, I had a regular uh, tour, the rest of the tour then. Uh, but initially it was uh, a little bit, but you know what? After a while, everybody was on this, in the same boat. We were all dodging the same rockets every morning and every evening, and a lot of us didn't want to be there in the first place. Right. So. Uh, it did kind of diminish. It was 1969.
0: People were looking to get away. If you look back, and and the book is very reflective, you look back at that period in your life, and I don't know many people who uh, came inches away or maybe feet away from becoming an ordained priest, then wind Mm -hmm. up in the military as a firearms instructor and is all set to go off to war and rah-rah and do what you need to do to stay alive, which is kill other people, and then you wind up a CO in the Army. Yeah. it It is, yeah. I, as I said at the beginning, this is a unique story, as they all seem to be. What has been the yeah. uh, impact from other vets, uh, people who have read the book, people who have touched base with you? What, what kind of reaction are you getting? Um, a real quick story. When I
1: was home and I was looking for work, I couldn't get work, My girlfriend said, you know, you ought to go get your teacher certification. So I went to a a class at Bridgewater College, which is now Bridgewater University. Uh, They had a teacher summer teachers courses. And I took a course in, I forget what it was, some education course. And one of the assignments for the completion of the course was, uh, tell us about something you did that would be considered radical. Now, in that course, were a bunch of Vietnam veterans who were also trying to get teacher certification, you know, uh, so they could get a career. And I told my story about uh, becoming a CO, I and they and and they were three or four more combat veterans. They were very supportive, mm. and that gave me the seed to think maybe somebody should, would want to read that story. So that was thirty five, forty years ago, yeah. and so. Mm-hmm. Since I've read, since I published this book, since, excuse me, since my book has been published, it's been almost two years now. I've gotten very good support from all stripes of veterans, uh, guys who are in support units like myself, guys and gals uh, who are in the hospital units, and certainly combat veterans. Because, as somebody said, you know. We didn't choose the jobs we got in the Army. The Army chose them for us. And the, what we had to do was do our best that we could with that job. And so they didn't have any disrespect for me. So that was great.
0: seems that we've come a long way in so many areas of culture and understanding, and this is one of them. Doesn't mean that we don't need warfighters. We do, because it's a tough world out there, but for those who have an issue with conscience that is paramount, as you did, took your lumps for it. You took your lumps for it and uh, sacrificed on your perspective, on your side quite a bit, but you also served, and I think that's what has to be mentioned over and over again. You were a soldier, just not one who elected to kill. Yeah.
1: Yes, and i and- and I, I I always tell people, I'm proud that I served well. I wish I didn't have to serve in the war zone, but I'm proud that I served well and And, and today, as a, I'm a member of the local VFW here in town. I'm a former commander of that post, and I try to help veterans, the young guys especially and gals, who are faced with mm. the huge bureaucracy called the VA. Uh, today and uh, because I feel like I have to give back to those who are now serving, um, it's a it today of all uh, because of the way things are going in the world. Uh, we need a good military uh, to to help and protect us. And uh, God bless these young people who went over to those places in Afghanistan and Iraq. And yeah, they were all volunteers. Yeah, they all signed the papers, but they still they they did some some yeah. terrific stuff in unbelievable circumstances. I, I have one more note for you, which maybe uh, you can you can use, and I'll I'll just say it. During the Vietnam War, approximately two and a half million people served in country over the eleven years. Of that two and a half million people. 119,000 people were granted conscience and objective status by the United States. Now, that that includes those who were in service and those who were out. So that's a very small number.
0: It is indeed a very I mean, small number. Which, and, and so yeah. that's
1: another reason why I needed to write the book. It is a unique story. Uh, people should realize that there was... Uh, that kind of passion to not kill available to soldiers uh, in that period. And that's mm-hmm. why uh, I wrote the book and why I'm writing a second book, which is my book about readjusting to the world when I came back. And I'm open to have that, uh, the galleys for that, by ooh, next fall. So.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, Yesterday's Soldier by Tom Keating, K-E-A-T-I-N-G, obviously an Amazon favorite. You can pick it up that way. Is there any other promotional piece we can add to that, or is that uh, sufficient?
1: Well, it, yeah, the 40th anniversary of the Vietnam Veterans War Memorial is occurring in Washington, D.C. this November, and I was asked by the Memorial Committee to submit one of my stories, through their commemorative book called the enduring legacy mm. of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And it's a commemorative edition. It is, it is uh, uh, just published. And my story is, is in it uh, about my visits to the Vietnam Veteran Memorial over the years. And I felt that to be a terrific honor uh, as a writer and as a Vietnam veteran to be included in the, uh, commemorative book, and it just got released.
0: Oh, that's terrific. Salute to you and everyone involved in that uh, worthwhile project. We should never forget and always honor what people have done and continue to do. Tom, a delight to meet you, sir, on the phone, uh, albeit, and Yesterday's Soldier is a captivating read. I wish you the very best going forward.
1: Thank you, and I have a, a little personal note for you. My wife is a school teacher in the Randolph Public Schools, Ah, okay. and she <laughs> said, when you talk to Jordan... Mention the
0: name John Pappas. Oh, my goodness. New John, well, Mr. Pappas, excuse me.
1: Mr. Pappas, uh, you were famous for your impersonation up here.
0: I just, I got to tell you, all right, let's keep rolling on this. Uh, the other the other day I did an event. I was very honored to be part of a charity event in Boston, and up comes a guy I hadn't seen in 40 years maybe longer, Mr. David Walgren. I'm sure your wife knows him. Yes, yes. Right? Yeah. David and that Walt, was like yes, old we home week. And now another one. And how, how long did your wife teach there?
1: Oh, well, she taught for 23 years. Came right after you left. She came to the high school right after you left. Oh. She was at the middle school for years. She was at Kennedy for years.
0: I, I went there, too. I, I might have... Uh, <laughs> Touched base with with your lovely bride, who you write about it fondly in the book, too. Well, that's great. Tell her I said hi, and I'm still a wise acre. I still make, uh, make fun of teachers, <laughs> but they, they love me. Tom, a delight chatting with you, sir.
1: All right. Thank you very much, Jordan, and uh, have a good day, sir.
0: Thanks again to Tom Keating, author of Yesterday's Soldier, a memoir of his personal Vietnam experience. For much more on Tom and his work, check out TomKeatingWriter.com. All one word, TomKeatingWriter.com. We are proud to honor the service of all of our brave veterans. Thank you, Tom. And thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to Ken Carberry at Chart Productions, where we produce this and many other podcasts and audiobooks and commercials. Find out more about the podcast, about me, my book, and much more at JordanRich.com. And until next time, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.